Welcome along to the Make Life Work podcast with me, Cy Jobling. I'm a software engineering manager, father of two, and in any spare time, I try to work on a variety of side projects, including communities and podcasts. Based on all this, I like to share my thoughts and experiences with fellow people from around tech about how we all try to find a balance for day jobs, life, and any side projects. For the seventh season of the podcast, we're continuing the project-specific format from season six. By diving into their projects, we hope to uncover some of the tips and tricks everyone uses to make them happen, so you lovely listeners can learn from our experiences to complete your own side hustles. This week, we're joined by Dan Moore, DevRel Manager at SARS startup Fusionorth. Dan is from Boulder, Colorado, where he has a young family and has been writing a book over lockdown for people new to engineering, all based on a blog he started about working in software over the past 20 years. Dan reached out to me over the summer to discuss his side project, so when I heard his story, I jumped to the chance to have him along. This is Making Letters to a New Developer with Dan Moore. So, welcome along, Dan Moore. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. How are you getting on today? Doing all right. It's a little early where I am at, but uh, I am excited to be a, a guest on your show. Thank you very much. And you mentioned you're not in our time zone. You're, I think, one of the first guests to be outside of the UK. Whereabouts are you from? Yeah, I'm, I'm in uh, Boulder, Colorado, USA. So wow. um, I appreciate the chance to talk to your international audience. Well, I think we'll go even further now afield with your uh, presence, which is wonderful. How many hours back are you then to UTC? I think six or seven. So it's, wow. it's per- pretty early in the morning for me. But I have, yeah. I have small kiddos, so this is actually a golden time to be, to be doing this. So. Small kids. Maybe talk about that later on, just to understand your background a bit more. Sure. Um, so yeah, the, the the purpose of this podcast is to talk about you know how we handle our side projects and spin off things amongst day jobs and life requirements, as it were. Before we get into the detail of what you've been working on lately, but can you tell us a bit about your career to date? You know how you got into tech, um, some maybe some highlights and where you're at now. Sure. So I um, got a job just before the dot-com bubble burst, so 99. Um, I worked for a small consulting company in here in Boulder and worked there for a couple of years. I contracted for a while, um, and then I joined a, a, a startup that was started by somebody who had um, that I'd met at that small consulting company, which actually has been a theme throughout my life. Like I think probably half or more of my jobs have been connected to that small consulting company in, in one way or another. Um, there, I actually had a chance to grow. I ended up spending about eight years at that startup um, slash small company. They were a real estate brokerage that was driven by tech. And so right. that was a highlight for me because that was my first management opportunity and the first time I kind of really owned a piece of technology and worked with a budget. Um, then I went back to contracting and then I, in 2016, joined a startup as a co-founder, a technical right. co-founder. Um, and that was a lot of fun, just building something, being super close to the customer. Um, you know, I had the title CTO, and we can talk about this if you want. Yeah. A CTO at a two-person company is totally different <laughs> than a CTO at a 10 or 100 or 1,000-person company. But I was, I was a CTO. And then um, more recently, I've shifted to DevRel. And so yeah. I am head of DevRel at a company called FusionAuth out of the Denver area. Um, incidentally, the founder worked at that small consulting company way back when I, uh, when I started my job and, um, yeah, so that's what I'm doing right now. And one of the things I love about DevRel is just the breadth of variety that you get, uh, you know, during the same day, I'll be updating documentation, writing an example application, um, talking to a customer and, um, you know, interacting with a team member, uh, helping them troubleshoot an issue. So every day is different, but it's full of variety. And that's one of the things I've learned I really enjoy. Fantastic. And uh, the the fact that you've been working in tech since that, pretty much the the, the important point, right? I call this sort of like, you know, it was the, the first day of when the tech blew up, literally. And then we started to pick the pieces up again and go, well, actually, we like what we did there. Let's try that. But you've been around the ropes. You've spent good times, long times in places as well. Eight years in a startup. 
How did you find that? That must have been quite a journey to go for eight years in the same company. Yeah, you know, one of the things that's wild about that is uh, you start to see, and, and I should be careful here, right? I mean, I can't call the startup such small company because it didn't take funding. It was a sustainable business, um, and it wasn't really. Te- I mean, it was tech driven, but not necessarily tech focused. Sure. Um, but but, um, but yeah, you start to like see mistakes that you make, right? Which is one thing I think that. As a consultant, you get a, a nice breadth of activities, and that's one of the reasons I love consulting. But as a someone embedded in a product, you actually get uh, an awareness of like long-term, longitudinal uh, changes. And so mm-hmm. there were bugs that I filed, in, you know, and then came back to three or four years later, right? <laughs> or um, yeah, I mean, and frustrating too because there were like the, the it was a business decision that that bug was not going to get fixed um, because it was just not worth it. It was, you know, small, it was an edge case. Um, as a developer, that can be really frustrating. But as someone who lives in the world, it actually is quite educational. And I don't think you get that when you're a consultant dropping into a project for a couple of years at most and, and then heading out, right? Because it's very easy to do like, okay, um, we'll fix, you know, that's a bug, we'll fix it, but bye. Whereas in a product world, you're just confronted over and over again with like the frailty of, of, of uh, human ingenuity, I guess would be the way I'd phrase it. Good way of putting it, actually, uh, the ingenuity, right? And then you mentioned more recently you went into, well, you became the CTO of your two-man outfit, um, which, again, I, I think we'd all do this, to be fair. You know, if you're in that situation, yeah, why not? I'll be CTO, you'd be CPO, you know? Sure. How, how did that come about? What was the situation to go into that position? Yeah, so my fa- uh, my co-founder um, was had she had she super smart um, had a was working toward her PhD in food systems, and she was taking an Uber around a conference in 2015, and was like, you know, had had some bells ring, and she thought, well, why can't we do this for commercial kitchens, which is kind of one of one of her areas of expertise. And so she started looking and she actually interviewed a number of people. Um, she posted the position on AngelList and I saw it. I was monitoring that just because I wasn't sure. I was kind of contracting. I kind of wanted something I could dig into a little more. And we met, we did the dance because uh, it is kind of like getting married when you're founding uh, a company. And then we start, we went right to work. She had, she had done a demo, right? She, she was non-technical. Um, and so she kind of cobbled together a, a prototype with Google Sheets and, and a lot of like guts, which if you're a technical co-founder out there looking for people, like you want someone with grit like that because it's going to be hard times. And as a technical co-founder, you're front-loading your risk because you have to build something before your partner can sell it. So you want to see what your partner can do without having any technical expertise at all. And if all they can do is come up with ideas or plans and they can't execute on them, that to me is a giant red flag. And, and Ashley, uh, shout out to her, um, wasn't in that camp. She definitely was able to get stuff done. And she, I, I departed after a couple of years because it was just the right time for me, but uh, she's still running it and they're still, still doing great. And she's recruited a team and uh, they survived the, you know, the COVID uh, lockdowns yeah. and whatnot. So yeah. Well, and then, well, we'll maybe fast forward into your new, well, your current DevRel role. That's obviously not in that business, it's something else. So how did that come about? Yeah, so um, I uh, basically um, had parted ways with my previous employer and Mm -hmm. was doing some contract writing and happened to reach out to this um, uh former coworker, we were on some shared like engineering leadership lists and I saw him, you know, probably once a year at, um, like, a you know, big party, like a na- uh, not neighborhood party, but like a 4th of July kind of celebration right. that another coworker puts on. And we just started chatting and I, I wrote a couple pieces cause I was really interested in doing technical content. Right. Um, and so I wrote some for them and I was interviewing around trying to find a, a full-time position and we ended up chatting a bit and it seemed like it might be a fit 
And so um, I, I joined their team. They had had a previous DevRel, but they, that person had left a couple months before and they're a developer focused product. Uh, and so it seemed like a, a natural fit. So, yeah. Fantastic. So when did, when did you join that company? Um, April of 2020. And right. I will say, you know, one lesson, if anyone's listening, I know this is a uh, podcast more about side projects, but keeping in touch with your past coworkers is, is like a slam dunk, right? Like don't, don't let those connections go because they're the people that know you the best. Yeah, in your work life, I should say, not not necessarily best best. No, I completely agree on that. And just for context, I left my company that I'm at now a year ago, give or take. Um, tried something else, didn't really like it. And luckily, because again, I kept those connections with um, the previous company. Mm. I found out there was an opportunity as an engineering manager. It's like, oh really? Nice. So planted the seed, and luckily my old my man just said. Brilliant. Let's just get you on a quick call to make sure you're doing it for the right reasons rather than go for the whole interview process. Totally. And it, it totally paid off and I'm in a much better place now as well. So it's, I completely agree with you on this. I concur. Keep those connections strong. Even if you're in a bad place in that job, do not root, burn those bridges. Right, right. Yeah. So I said it, folks. So it must I be said true. it, but so have you, Dan. You know, it's not just <laughs> one person. <laughs> Totally, totally, no, that's great. But um, so you've been there for about a year and a half now then in, in Fusion North? Yep, yep. Cool. So, I mean, I, I interviewed Lorna Mitchell in the previous season. Um, she's also head of DevRel, very similar. Um, can you tell me a bit about what your role encompasses in that position? You, you've mentioned like document writing and line managing and sort of stuff like that, but can you tell us a bit more about what that role entails? Yeah, yeah, and uh, Lorna's, Lorna's great and uh, far more experienced at DevRel than I am. Um, I might have her on total career, but I don't know. Um, but I think for the listeners who want to go back and check out that episode, great episode, a um, little bit different of a space just because the companies are different. So um, FusionAuth is bootstrapped. Ivan just raised, I don't know, it was I think it was $100 million, $150 million. So... Right. I'm a lot more focused on um, being a player coach rather than, um, and, and honestly, to some extent, I think we just hired our first other DevRel uh, in June. So for right. about that year or so, I was I was the only person, um, not the only person doing DevRel tasks because the CEO in a small company does some of that, the CTO did some of that, but um, whereas I think Lorna's, more focused on building a team. Uh, right. I'm not really interested in that aspect of DevRel or, or frankly, of management at all. Like I've done some hiring over my career and and some managing, and um, it's just not. It's it, it's a totally different skill set that you need to start over and learn well. And I've tried it a couple of times, and I'm just not. That's not my bent. So sure. I'll probably be an IC for the rest of my life. Um, that's individual. Um, What's that contributor. Stand for? contributor, individual contributor. Yeah. Thank you. Um, not independent contractor. Anyway, um, so some details about what I actually do. Like uh, I update documentation. I've written a number of gu uh, guides. So there's actually, when you think about developer documentation or developer experience, um, especially at a bootstrap company, um, people have this idea that DevRel is all about going out and giving talks. And mm. again, while I'm no... I'm definitely not as prominent as, as Lorna. I have given some talks. I've given a ton of meetup talks. Um, that's very retail. And COVID has opened up some opportunities. Like I've given talks across um, the U.S. and in Israel and Germany and London mm -hmm. um, via Zoom, which is awesome. But I'm also really interested in leverage. And in DevRel, the leverage is really good docs. Um, videos because they can be consumed on demand and example applications. And so when I joined FusionAuth, I think we had two-ish example applications. And so I spent a good part of my first six months actually really building out example applications in different languages. We support like 10 different languages. Um, and so that gave me an opportunity to really understand the product more because I was approaching it as a user. Um, I actually don't build off of 
the master branch or the main branch at all. Right. I always take the released version because I feel like that gives me a more uh, higher fidelity experience that the users are going to get. Um, sure. I, I do read the code some, but which they can't because it's a closed source product. But um, I, I try as much as I can to put myself in that uh, vein of I'm a developer. I don't know. So Fusion Auth, just a quick aside, is a, an Auth product. It's kind of like Auth Zero. Um, with right. some differences, but that's basically the main competitor. And most people don't care about that, right? They, it's a necessary feature. They want to like get in their application, but they really want to build those features that their customers pay for, not login, registration, that stuff. And so when I joined, um, I didn't really understand Auth. I'd done it myself a couple of times. Um, and so I still try to keep that beginner's mindset because I think that's just a critical part of developer relations is to have that um, hat on, right? Where you're not, you, you want to be an expert because you want to speak to it, but you also want to be a beginner because that's where most of your people are, most of your users are, right? They're not, they don't care about the intricacies of OAuth and the different kinds of grants, right? They just want to solve their problem. And that's why the product is there, really. That's where the market has come from. It's people don't really want to build these things when it's already ready for them. How do you, and you guys, you've obviously been into that mode from the start. You're like, right, give me six months or so. I want to build some real world examples as a beginner and see how this goes because then it gives me fresh context for all these docs and guys and videos that we're going to share. And it's actually a real world output. Yeah, if you're listening to the podcast, I'm nodding to everything Cy just said. I mean, <laughs> that, is, that, is, that is so true. And, and I think, um, you know, one of the struggles I have um, as, as DevRel is, is trying to keep that mindset, right? Um, and I don't know how you keep a beginner's mindset other than to keep learning and, and, and also to take advantage of new hires. Um, I, I want every new hire to go through and do at least a couple of those tutorials because they will see things that I did not see, um, you know, and also because things move on. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a good point. So it's something I've been doing as an engineering manager. Again, we bring in new engineers all the time, so on a regular basis anyway. Um, as part of their onboarding, I ask them to go through the documentation to get set up, identify any gaps, make sure, just make that change. Don't even seek approval, just make it. Because then nice. it empowers them to know that they can do that ongoing as well. Right. Especially in quite a large organization, it, there's a little bit of intimidation, a bit of imposter syndrome going on. It's like, wait, I'm all right to touch the documentation. It's versioned, it's internal. Really don't worry about it, mate. Right. Just make the change. And if we need to roll back, we can. Right. And I, do you find that you go through this with your people as well? You know, I mean, so we've only had the one right. hire. Um, and so, um, but definitely I've, I've encouraged them to like, keep track of, of things that they see that are, that look weird or that are dumb or, you know, we, we talked regularly yeah. uh, when they were starting. Um, one thing I do, I do like to tell people is to deal with that kind of imposter syndrome. And I like your approach of just do it, especially if it's internal facing, but I think even if it's external facing, I like to tell people, Hey, take notes for 30 days. I want your fresh eyes. I want your feedback. But I think if you give people feedback, as soon as you, think it. Um, sometimes you don't have a full context. And so at the end of that 30 days, let's meet and review this stuff. And some things will make sense to you that didn't make sense to you that first week, right? Because you have the bigger context. Some things will be obvious candidates for change and then other things might be candidates for discussion. Um, but I, I think people who don't take advantage of fresh eyes in their organization and in their um, team are, are wasting tremendous opportunities to to solve the fish and water problem or to make the fish and water problem a little bit better. Sounds good. So obviously you've been in this new position now for about 18 months. I think it sounds like you joined just as lockdown was coming into play. So just curious how that might have affected the role and your, your situation in the position as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that the most obvious effect is uh, no traveling for speaking. Sure. Um, and you know, honestly, no, no real traveling to meet the team. Like, I think I've met the team four or five times, right. uh, in person over the past 18 months. They're in Denver. Most of them are in Denver. Right. I'm in Boulder, which is for your international audience about a 40 minute drive. So it's not tremendously hard to get to, but 
we've been pretty uh, COVID cautious and other folks have been cautious too. And so, um, you know, uh, I think that taking a step back, it really focuses, forces you to think about, again, it's retail versus wholesale, yeah. right? And there are different levels of touch points and you get different things. Um, I am lucky that Fusion Auth is a relatively mature product. It's actually been around for about five years, although they rebranded it two or three years ago. It used to be called something else. Right. Um, and so product management, like product discovery, which I think is really where retail, like getting in front of somebody and showing them something. Um, and this is from my experience at the previous startup. You know, that's really important. I think now we're mature enough that it's really more about scaling and like hitting that 80% of use cases and providing documentation around existing functionality. And that's a lot more amenable to things that are done on, um, you know, that don't need to be done face to face. Right. Got it. Makes sense. Cool. So with the lockdown in mind, I think you mentioned a few times you, you're an avid writer. Um, tell us a bit about your blog, uh, Letters to a New Developer. Yeah. Yeah. So Letters to a Developer is a passion project of mine. It's a side project. Good. Uh, and I started, so I, so in the early 2010s, uh, I think 2012, yeah. I wrote an ebook about a technical topic and about um, three months after I published it, you know, I made some money, a couple hundred dollars. Three months after I published it, it was out of date. And so I was really bummed out, but I self-published it. It was a good experience. Um, fast forward a number of years, and I started to think about writing another book. And I uh, knew that I didn't want it to be um, in the same vein, right? I, I, like, I love writing it. I love writing that technical ebook. It makes you, like, if you have ever read a technical book, uh, you may not realize the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into just a sentence or two. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely spent a lot of time just figuring out how to write one sentence, right? I was like, oh, wait, I can't say that unless I verify it's true. So I have to stand this up and I have to like test this out. Um, I wanted something that was a little softer and a little more evergreen that wouldn't go out of date. And for all you prospective writers out there, I always say uh, the steps to writing a book um, based on my end of two mm-hmm. um, is write titles for 10 blog posts, write the 10 blog posts. And if you can't get through the titles or the 10 blog posts, you're going to have a heck of a time writing a book. So, so do that first. It's low effort, uh, relatively it's low risk because starting a blog is basically free except for your time. Anyway. So I, I, I started the blog in like September. Um, it's about three years ago. And I wasn't sure whether I was going to turn it into a book at the time. I just wanted to write something. I also saw I was, I was hiring some new developers. I was interacting with people that were right out of boot camps. And I saw this like hole where people would come out of boot camps with some technical skills, but didn't really understand working in a team, uh, working in a professional environment. Um, some of the, the hard knocks that I'd learned over 20 years of being in the software world. So that was my goal was to write a, a blog, which by the way is up there still. It's free. You don't have to buy the book to get some, some value out of this podcast. That was um, kind of the genesis of the blog. And the premise, in case that isn't obvious, is it's, it's short letters. So between one and three or four minutes to read on a different topic. So you started writing this blog, yeah, three years ago, give or take, September 2018. Um, in fact, it's pretty much close to the day. I've just realized where we, when we were recording, um, you've identified the gap in the market, let's say, uh, uh, the market's relatively niche, but actually you could probably broaden this out quite wide. If it's just to a new developer, you know, that such a broad brush nowadays, was it specific to certain areas or is it, how did you kind of work out the niche that you're going for with this? Yeah. I mean, you know, what I really aim for was was talking i mean again i was having conversations with new developers either because i was thinking about hiring them or because i saw them at conferences or meetups and so the goal was really to give concrete advice that they weren't gonna find elsewhere and Mm -hmm. and the goal was to be explicitly non-technical frankly like i do talk about general things like 
text editors and version control and, and things like that. But I wasn't going to talk about the latest React thingamabob, whatever it is, right? Like yeah. I explicitly said, you know, this is going to be about, I hate this term, the soft skills, right? Which I think are actually pretty hard. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was going to be about, you know, how to learn or, you know, um, how to deal with boredom or other things that, um, how to interact with your teammates, right? That was, I tell this story and this actually um, is, is maybe worth digging into, like I wanted to save money in my first job. And so I brought my lunch every day, maybe four or five days, four out of the five days. And so I would go out, I would, I would take a break from work. I would walk out to this little hill by my office and I would sit there by myself. And, you know, that made financial sense and it might've made sense from like an introvert's perspective, but from a team building and like career perspective, it was, it was dumb because lunches are this time where you can actually interact with people and in a non-stressful way and build up connective tissue and relationships. And I was missing out on that. And after a few months, I started to go to lunch and I had a lot more fun and I was building things and it, yeah, it cost me money. But that lesson is one of those lessons that I don't think you get. Uh, maybe some people understand that intuitively. I didn't. And so that was the kind of thing that I wanted to write about with letters to a developer is like, Hey, dummy, you know, <laughs> yeah, obviously if it, I don't know your financial situation, if you need to bring your lunch, that's not a problem, but you need to find some way to connect to your, um, teams outside of tickets, outside of requests with work, even if that's just sitting around the water cooler and, uh, I don't know if I can say shoot the shit here, yeah. um, <laughs> but, and, and when things get tense, when things get frustrating, when you need something from somebody, you can leverage, leverage is the wrong word because it sounds so transactional. You now have a relationship with somebody and that will help you um, with your coding and programming and development tasks. And that was something I had to learn. That's a, that's a really good example, though, to be honest. I think especially through lockdown, people have completely underestimated the the value, I hate to use that word as myself, but the, the importance of having a social interaction with your teammates. Um, last 18 months, I think most of us who've been lucky to keep our jobs have just ended up eating lunch away from our screen and then coming back to the screen. And there's no, that, that's really bad for your well-being anyway. What I've been trying to experiment with, I'm not saying it's been very successful, is just say, once a week, just use a lunch break and pull, bring your lunch to the screen and have a chat with your teammates. It doesn't have to be work-related. You can maybe bring a game on these online games just to have that downtime with your colleagues, you know? And you can maybe do something similar in the real world when we come out of lockdown where you literally just take your packed lunch to a park or something like that so you actually do it together. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that your, your blog sort of kind of covered these soft skills in inverted commas that are completely overlooked as a new engineer in the world. Yeah, no, it's been a fun experience. I mean, I've definitely had some great feedback from people who, uh, you know, have said, oh, I, I read every post on your blog. Uh, this was fantastic. Um, I've given some talks on the topic and that has been uh, well received. So another kind of um, piece of advice for the prospective authors out there, don't write a, a book to get to make money. Um, it's, it's not, if you want to make money as a software developer, you can contract out for a much higher hourly rate, but to actually learn a subject and to help people, uh, books are great. Again, that gets back to the, the scale. We talked a little bit about scale in Devro. A book is a lot more scalable than a mentoring session. Um, even though a mentoring session might be, you know, you can be a little more, um, reactive, but, um, a book does scale really well. So. Um, I, I like to think it's helped um, a number of people. If you need help with your side project, either for inspiration, support, or just general feedback, remember to join our On The Side community on Slack. There are a number of previous guests from the podcast in there, including Sam Hardacre, Mike Street, Dom Hodgson, and Mark Lismore. Pop on over to ontheside.network, which will take you straight through to registration, and I'll see you in there. So I'm curious how you've got a stream of blog posts that you've kind of been working through over, let's say, a year, give or take. 
Um, how did you transition that into an actual book? Because I think that's the part we probably don't really understand and probably underestimate how complicated it can be. Yeah. Um, so uh, do you? I have a. I, do you want me to go through the timeline or not? You want me to skip the timeline? Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Tell, tell us about your, your, your process almost. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in and actually I wrote this out yesterday, kind of in prep for this because I hadn't really put it together. Um, I started the blog in September of 2018. We talked about that in June of 2019. I went to a conference and happened to, I think, I don't know how I connected with somebody, but it, she was an editor at A Press. And so we actually had a face-to-face conversation at this conference. And I think I was just curious what the process would be like to, to publish a book. Um, and then I went through some job changes and I kind of put it on hold. And then in January, 2020, I reached out to her again and said, hey, you know, I'm interested in starting this process again. Um, in February, I actually put together a proposal. I think a proposal is, is one of the benefits of um, doing a formal book uh, because if you self-publish a book, you don't have to put together a proposal. And I'll tell you, a proposal is a pain in the butt um, because you actually have to like, I mean, it's almost like a requirements document for a piece of software. Like you have to think about like what you're trying to accomplish, who your target market is, um, who your competitors are, which I'd never, who wants to look for the competitors, right? Like, I don't want to look for competitors, but I was forced to. So I was, you know, looking around and seeing kind of what other people were talking about the same thing. Um, and then the, in March, they accepted the proposal. And I um, kind of had an aggressive schedule because I did have a bulk of the content written. And so I think I committed to three chapters by first of May and everything by the, by mid July. Right. And so what I actually did was I pulled every, I wrote some software to like pull everything from the RSS feed down. I grouped the blog posts by topic um, to kind of see what themes there were. Right. Cause in, in the letters book, there's um, different chapters, right? There's, you know, a chapter about, I should know this better, but um, <laughs> a chapter about your first month, a chapter about, questions, a chapter about understanding the business, mistakes, etc. And so I grouped those out. Um, and then I started to review them. And I reviewed them for a number of reasons. The first was, uh, I, if, if somebody else wrote a blog post, I, and I wanted to include in the book, I had to go get legal permission. Um, right, yeah. And so I wanted to make sure I, I took care of that. I then wanted to review any of the existing blog posts and I did end up revising them all pretty extensively because some of them have been sitting around for a year. And then I also wanted to identify any gaps. And yeah. so about 10% of the book is actually totally new and not on the blog. Right. And that was, you know, while I was doing this thematics things, I would say like, oh, you know, a key part, part of learning for me right now is actually listening to podcasts. And so I should have some advice about podcasts. You know, I'm not going to be authoritative, but again, this is more of a broad brush mm. giving you, um, I mean, the beautiful thing about Google is that you can learn anything that you want. The hard part about it is that you have to know what questions to ask. And so this book is really about teaching and the blog is about teaching people what questions to ask. Cause if you don't know about, version control or the word version control or the concept, you're gonna have a hard time learning about it because what do you type into Google? Um, anyway, so that was kind of the writing process. So it was a lot of getting up early in the morning and, and reviewing this stuff. Uh, I read every chapter aloud at least twice because I feel like that really gives you a, a good flavor for natural language. And uh, I actually delivered it early. I delivered it in early June. Wow. So, Not often you hear a developer say that either. <laughs> Solid burn. Um, I don't know how I, I can. Again, this gets back to what I said about writing 10 blog posts. I think that that was crucial to my success. Um, I, I cannot imagine taking on the revision and the editing and the, all the other plate juggling and having to write the original content, hundred percent of original content too. That would have been, I, I would have pushed the schedule out, but it still would have been a tremendous amount of work. Absolutely. But I, I like how you kind of, you had something to base it on. It wasn't like a brand new slate that you just start fresh. You could use what you got. You use it as a chance to reflect on the contents. So it wasn't just like, yep, copy, paste, publish, done. 
you, and you did it pragmatically. You were like, well, actually, if I did the first three chapters in a month or two, I know what I can do for two or three months. Again, thinking a bit more agile, dare I say. <laughs> and and that is the benefit of a publisher, right? Like they were the ones pushing for those kind of deadlines because um, they have an interest in making sure that you're not, they have things they need to meet too, right? Like they're you're part of their production schedule. And so, um, you know, they push for that. And, and again, we can talk about the contrast between self-publishing and, and, and publishing with the traditional publisher. You know, that external accountability is, as we all know, a really good driver of, of delivery, um, whether it's to an external team in your company or to a customer or, in this case, to a publisher. So I, I found that to be a helpful aspect of, of doing it this way. Cool. So actually, that's a good question I was going to ask next. Was like, is there anything you do differently based on your experience from self-publishing and then traditional publishing? What would you like to do next if you ever had to do it again? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I guess I would say I've definitely seen publishers since then that take less. Um, so, uh, so for people who don't know about um, publishing, basically... Uh, the publisher, uh, you know, you have a list price of, I think my book is, oh my God, I think it's expensive. It's um, 35 bucks or something okay. like that. And um, when the publisher signs a the contract, they give you, or when, when you submit all your chapters, I should be careful here. I'm not sure exactly what it is. At some point when the publisher says, hey, this book is ready to go, they give you a bunch of money and that's called your advance. And that is against um, how much you previously, how much they expect your book to sell. And so for a small develop, for a developer, it won't be very much money, but it's nice to get some money. Mm. Um, and then as your book sells, every, you know, every book, you get a certain amount of money that goes into your account, but that counts against the advance. And so all that is to say that I don't know if I'll earn out my advance. I don't know if I'll ever sell enough books because it's a niche market. Um, because the amount of money I get per book is relatively small until I sell more and more books. Um, so again, back to the previous point, don't write a book for the money, write a book for the expertise you will get. And it does open some doors. Um, I did get a chance to write some other things for a, another publisher in a different book, in a different context. And I think that the fact I'd written a book meant let them know very quickly that I was serious um mm. it's a fun thing to mention at parties uh no it's also nice to nice to be able Absolutely. to give it away to hand out to people that i know need it so that was a little bit rambly but i, I guess the, the upshot <laughs> is if you want it to be like a lucrative income stream and you really think you can you can do that and you want to take care of the marketing and the publishing and the type you know the typesetting and the and uh the editing or you want to man project manage that I think self-editing is the way to go. Um, it just aligns your incentives a lot more. Like I've self-published things. My wife has self-published things. And when you're self-publishing, you get to keep 90% of the cost of the book. So guess what? You can do a discount code for 50% and still make a, you know, a good deal of money. Um, whereas, you know, the numbers are a lot smaller for this book. Um, other than that, the financial thing was probably the biggest thing that I think people should be aware of. I don't know that I'd necessarily change it, but it's something yeah. people should be aware of. Other than that, um, no, I can't think of it. That's fair. I mean, I, I, you reminded me actually, I think back in the web standard sort of movement days as well, late noughties, a lot of uh, developers were self or well, publishing themselves. You know, some nice tangible books, which is the other thing I want to point out, by the way. You've got a real world book in your hands it's not a digital thing no one can touch really so that must be another added benefit um going back to a point a lot of those guys use i don't think they did it for the money it was more to get the recognition and open those doors like you say it's more about right i've got a new thought and process i'm going to write this down and then i'm going to go and talk about it and then hopefully some people go i really like what you're doing with that do you want to come and work with us can we contract you or whatever it is and that's probably the main motivator to do this really from what I can get yeah. from you. I mean, so you can get some of those benefits from a blog, right? Or a newsletter. Sure. Um, I will say that I think that 
the difference between a blog and a newsletter and a book is that you have to be reflective with the book because it is kind of more of a thing. Um, so you have to say, this is in, this is out. And I don't know about you, um, but I've written blogged for since 2003. So what is that? 18 years I've blogged mm. and it is rare that I'll go back and revise a blog post. It's extremely rare, right? Uh, blogs are a moment in time, whereas books are more durable. And so apart from the opening doors, I think there's value in forcing you to revisit your previous thoughts and determine, Hey, this, this, this is the gold. And this was, this was horrible, right? This is a really dumb idea. And this is a really good idea. Yeah. And, um, especially in the context of new technologies or new methodologies, um, that, that can be very valuable. So. Yep. And, and on your point around technologies, you know, today's front end web stack is tomorrow's, you know, newspaper lining. It's just, it goes out of fashion so quickly now. You, there's, you, there's no reason to do that right. really, apart from maybe blogging because it is time important and you can just get it out there to an audience. Hopefully people will read it, but otherwise you've done it for your own benefit as well. Totally. totally. That's cool. We talked a lot about the book um, and you've mentioned a few times about your wife and your, your family situations. How do you, I mean, you, you mentioned early mornings was your time to write. How have you found that? And it was, it must've been tricky if there were young children as well. Yeah. So both my kids are under 10. Um, and so a couple yeah. of years ago, they were, or a year ago, they were, they were younger. Um, you know, I think that, so actually my wife actually pushed me to submit the proposal. So thank you, Pam, for doing that. Oh, wow. Um, I was a little scared to do it, to be honest with you. And, um, I think it, it is tough, right? Cause your kids want you. Um, I think doing things off hours as much as you can and cutting back other commitments, um, as much as you can, uh, is going to be helpful. I think it also, to be honest, is good to see good for your kids to see you sacrificing towards a larger goal. And I think this is true of all side projects. Um, that you can say, Hey, um, you know, I love you. I want to spend time with you, but I also am making a choice to, to do this thing that I think will be an accomplishment in my life. Um, I think that I actually, I should probably have that conversation with my kids. I don't know if that has percolated up to their consciousness, but I know that they for a long time were like, Oh yeah, daddy's writing, you know, he needs to be kind of left alone or I'll come down and say hi and then I'll, I'll leave or they'll sit on my lap while I read something aloud, right? Like that definitely happened too. Um, but I will say that having a supportive partner was, was huge because there were times when I would just like, not just in the early mornings, but sometimes after dinner, I would just like disappear. And if you've had small kids, um, you know this. And if you haven't had small kids, I'll tell you that the, uh, there's this time we used to call the witching hour where it was just, getting kids after dinner from after dinner and into bed is sometimes can be a joy, but oftentimes is horrendous. <laughs> and so, uh, Pam took a lot of the, the weight there, um, for me to be able to, uh, to get through my, my process in the time that I was allotted. I mean, there's many elements of that part that I'd like to pull apart a little bit. Um, the fact that your partner encouraged you to put that proposal first was probably a starting sign. You know, and the fact that she you got she you got full moral support from her going forward as well. She knew that you had a commitment. Being a self publisher herself, she knows how difficult it can be, and also with little kids, you know, it's a it's a shared act in in modern parenting. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure uh, whether there's a question there, but all I can say is doing a side project like writing a book or starting something up is hard enough with that with the full moral support of your partner. So. I would always check with her before I kind of consider a new job. I think that you really should um, dig in. The honest truth is, here's the honest truth, is that it's very easy. It's easier for someone to support something in the abstract than in the reality. And so there were times when Pam was mad at me because I was gone um, because she was frustrated because the kids, <laughs> the kids might have been being difficult or she had other things she wanted to do, right? Um, yeah, but if you can't get that agreement in the abstract, um, I would think that it would be worthwhile to explore other things and see whether you could find something you could get an agreement in the abstract in, um, cause it's just so hard 
once once you get going. Absolutely. And the, yeah, I agree with you with this. And, and in fact, I was trying to record a podcast episode the other evening. I normally do it around lunch times because it's best time for everyone. Um, and it was it was the witching hour. So I completely relate to this. It's my, I said to my wife, are you okay to put the children to bed tonight? I know it's meant to be my turn, but I've got a call. She was like, that's fine. And I could hear it in the background, the, all what was going on. So, as long as they're not interfering the audio quality, I might get away with this. But I think people underestimate, you know, if you've got family commitments, side projects are an afterthought in theory, you know. But luckily with your sort of publisher motivator, you all saw the benefits of why you were doing this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's actually a good a good thing. Like, uh, Or maybe a good rule of thumb is, you know, I'm not sure about your side project, right? The podcast that you're working on, right? That we're on right now, or if you have other things going on, but like, if you can have some kind of external motivator, right? A customer who's paid you money or a friend who's going to use the project or a publisher who has said, Hey, you know, you need to meet these dates. I think that can be a, a, a good way for you to checkpoint yourself. Um, yeah. And, uh, to have those discussions about the trade-offs with with your partner fine yeah perfect and finally another part you, you pointed out was letting your children understand what you're doing i think i say young i'm not sure about you there seems to be a lot more of entitlement in our new generation they expect a lot more but for them to realize you need to work hard in life and there are going to be times when we're stressed out it's normal it's okay but for them to see daddy and mommy being in that mode I think, yeah, it's as long as it's not a pattern or a common thing, they should understand why we do this. Yeah. I mean, what's the, I've heard this stat, I don't know if it's true or not, but um, it's kids listen to 3% of what you say and 97% of what you do, right? And so it's <laughs> like, you know, um, it's one thing to say, hey, you're going to have to work hard in life, right? Because it's, and especially if you are an adult and you're doing something and your kid's trying to do something too, right? Like they're trying to mimic you. Um, well, you're gonna have an easier time of it. And the kid's gonna say, well, geez, you had an easier time. Why don't you just do it? Or God, I'm, I'm so dumb because I can't do this thing that, that you can do, right? Um, and to see your parents go through something that is difficult and have a product at, at the end, um, I think is part of that modeling that a thousand lectures isn't gonna teach. Um, and I would say that, um, no one does a side project unless they think it's worthwhile. I think, um, and showing your kids that you are willing to make sacrifices, um, whether that's Netflix or time with them or, um, you know, sleep or whatever it is that, <laughs> um, to, to achieve something is, just a really valuable lesson. I, I mean, I'm just echoing your point, right? Uh, but uh, you know, yeah. kind of, um, I think that that is a benefit. That is an unspoken benefit of side projects that I'd, I'd actually never thought of, but I think it's very, um, very helpful. And it doesn't just have to be your kids, by the way. Like, I think your friends, right? If you, if you have friends, you know, in your 20s and you don't have kids or you're in your 50s and you don't have kids, like your friends can still see you doing something and can admire you, um, friends, coworkers, et cetera, maybe it's less visceral, right? Mm -hmm. But, it, you know, when I have friends who go do big things, I just had a friend who hiked, um, there's a, a, a trail uh, in Colorado that's uh, 400 miles long, and she wow. went and hiked it over like 40 days. And I was like, holy cow, right? Like that's really an admirable quality. And so a side project can be something like that too. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point as well. So we're, we're obviously talking about a lot more tech driven side projects, which tend to fall into the realm of building a thing. But yeah, it's something I've called out on one of our, uh, I've got a Slack community for people that are side project fans. And I've always remind them, you know, even being healthy and fit is a side project because you probably have an end goal and you'll need to find time to do this and you'll want to see the benefits of doing this, but it's for personal gain. So it's all, it's ticking all these boxes. But it's, again, it doesn't necessarily have to be a made thing. It could just be a part of life. Totally. 100%. I'm, I'm watching the time as well, so we're getting close now. Um, have you got, you've already dropped fed a few good tips already about publishing. If there's one rule, one tip that you wish you'd heard back at the start, 
um, what would you give to any aspiring writer that would want to get into publishing? I would say that, again, do it for the experience and the in-depth knowledge that you will get uh, because you will become uh, a world expert on whatever you choose to write about. Um, you know, I don't care whether it's something broad like what new developers should know or React or something super niche. Um, you will become one of the people who knows this the best. And so pick something that you love. And also, I, I guess I should say that I think you will, as you get better at it, you will love it more, right? Um, as you gain more expertise about React or whatever the topic is, you will love it more. Um, so I'd say that's the main reason to get into to publish something. I would not say don't do it for the money. I would say don't do it for the connections. I would say do it because you want to really dig in and it can be a great incentive to do so. That's a good opportunity to become an expert in something that you are passionate about as well. Absolutely. Yep. Sounds great. Yep. Dan, it's been absolutely great to talk to you. I reckon we could go on for twice as long, quite frankly. It's a shame we are time boxing this. Um, Thanks for doing it. And for anyone that wants to reach out to you or read your book or any of the other things that you're doing, how do they get hold of you? Sure. Uh, so I'm pretty active on Twitter. It's more DS. So M O O R E D S, uh, Moreds or more DS. Um, and then letters to a new developer.com is my blog and it's still active. Um, I have dialed it back a little bit, but uh, new posts twice a month and uh, that aren't in the book. And you can also learn about the book there too. Wonderful. And I'll get all the details in the show notes. People can click through easily as well. Again, appreciate you joining me this, this week on the podcast. Um, wonderful to talk to you. And thank you for being the first international guest as well. Well, Sai, I really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you for having me. Oh, brilliant. Pleasure. Mutual pleasure. It's good to hear from you. Um, and hopefully we'll get more sales for you as well. A few more units out of the book. That'd be great. <laughs> Won't hurt. <laughs> Cheers, Dan. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Huge thanks to Dan for joining me this week. Wonderful to hear his thoughts, process and advice on how to get into software writing. Hopefully it inspires you to write your own book using the tips and tricks Dan provided. You can get Dan's book at letters to a new developer.com and follow Dan on the socials as at more DS. If you'd like to win a copy of Dan's book, make sure you follow both of us on Twitter, MoreDS and Make Life Work Pod, and we'll pick a follow at random at the end of this season, which concludes on Monday, the 11th of October. As for the podcast, we obviously love to hear your thoughts. Get in touch on all the socials, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, as at Make Life Work Pod. You can email hello at makelifeworkpodcast.com or even visit the website makelifeworkpodcast.com for all the show notes and archives. And please remember to rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. I'll be back next time with someone else from Tech Scene talking about their recent side projects on the Make Life Work podcast. Thank you.